to be afraid. But I want you to do something to help illustrate, I hope, the point that this sermon will communicate. If you have your Bibles this morning, before you open them and turn to the passage, I want you to have them closed. And I want you to hold your Bible up and look at it. And I want to illustrate to you exactly why you need to listen to this sermon. As you look at your Bible this morning and you see the spine here that my hand is holding and you see the pages, you'll notice something, I bet, about that Bible in front of you. And that is, is that the pages on the right side are more worn than the pages on the left side. The pages on the right side are the pages that make up the New Testament. The pages on the left side are the pages that make up the New Testament. If your Bible's like mine, I bet you the pages on the right are more torn. That, that pretty gold has begun to rub off of them. But, but if you were to flip through some of the pages on the left side, many of them, no doubt, are still stuck together uh, from when you bought it many, many decades ago. Well, this isn't meant to indict us this morning, but to illustrate that as Christians we tend to neglect our reading of the Old Testament. No doubt many of us have uh, journeyed into reading through the Bible in a year, and we make it through the end of Genesis only to stumble upon our face and say, I'll try again next year. It's true, it's difficult, it's distant. The culture is so strange to us and so foreign Many of the stories are, are 5,000 years old. We, we feel so disconnected. And, and then, of course, as Christians, we feel as if it's another religion. Just recently, I was, I, I was reading a news article where a uh, Christian theologian was making reference to some false teaching. And, and he made this, this statement, and he said that this particular false teaching couldn't undo a 2,000-year-old religion. And, and you might think, well, of course, he's referring to Christianity. But, but see, that's the problem. You see, so many Christians think that Christianity is just 2,000 years old, as if, as if God just started his redemptive work through Christ 2,000 years ago. No, the Bible... It's a bigger story than that, a story of redemption that transcends and, and, and is bigger than the New Testament. And, and frankly, one can't really grasp the depth of what God is doing through Christ apart from the Old Testament. And sometimes we don't understand the customs and the cultures and these various nuances. We get into the law and into Leviticus, into Numbers, into Deuteronomy, and it, and it just feels so foreign. We read through the prophets and we see page after page of God's judgment of the nation of Israel. And it's tiring and it's kind of frankly sad and depressing. And we need to hear some of those encouraging words of Jesus to pep us up in the morning. We don't need to hear how God is going to rain down fire upon his people. Perhaps it's because we've been taught that all we need is the New Testament. Well-meaning Christians. Well-meaning Christians. So hear me out. Passing out New Testaments, I think, undermines the sufficiency of God's Word. 
because it teaches people that God, that all you need is the New Testament. No, God's revelation of himself runs from Genesis to Revelation. It's not, doesn't begin in Matthew, but it begins in Genesis. Perhaps you were taught that as New Testament Christians, all you need was the New Testament. Did you know? That's not how the New Testament authors thought about the Old Testament. In 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. When Paul says all Scripture, he's referring to the Old Testament. He's not necessarily referring narrowly to the New Testament. Many of the books of the New Testament hadn't even been written yet. The Gospel of John that we just spent the last year studying had yet to be penned by the Spirit through the Apostle John when Paul wrote that phrase, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Again, this is not to say that the New Testament is not inspired or unhelpful. But fascinatingly enough, we find a closer connection with the culture of the New Testament, which was 2,000 years removed from us, than we do the Old. Brothers and sisters, the culture of the New Testament is just as foreign to you and I in the 21st century as the 21st century B.C. We still have to do the hard work to understanding the historical context. Still have to do the hard work to understanding what God has done. And, brothers and sisters, here's what's wonderful, is that the New Testament authors is really seeking to give you interpretational guide and tools to be able to understand the Old Testament. The New Testament interprets the Old. And do you know Jesus dealt early on in his ministry, with the same misconceptions about the Old Testament that you and I still face today. In particular, how the Old Testament law was to relate to his ministry. Christians and Jewish leaders tripped over this again and again. And Jesus helpfully teaches clearly about how we as Christians are to view the Old Testament even today. So my hope this morning for us is to really, I think, gain a better understanding of our Bibles so that we not only read them, right, but obey them. We don't even, we don't, we don't merely know the words, but we obey the words that, that, that you and I come to the understanding that you can come to know the one true and living God. Be in relationship with him, having the spirit indwelt by, by you. And come to know the one true and living God through both Old and New Testament. That you don't need just the new, just the, the red words of Jesus. But you need it all in, under, in order to understand who God is, who you are. And God's great plan of redemption. Now last week we began our study of what has come to be called the Sermon on the Mount. Really not a sermon. More of Jesus confronting what it means to live as kingdom people. Matthew in chapter 4 describes the call of the disciples. 
And I want to be very clear as I was last week. And I want to be very clear every week. Because this is where Christians tend to go awry. When they confuse obedience and salvation. Jesus has already called his disciples to follow him. We need to understand that the teaching that Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount falls within a historical context where Jesus is revealing why he came and this new redemptive era that he is ushering in with his life, death, and resurrection. And the reason why you want to be cautious lest you begin to be crushed under the weight of these exhortations. When Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you've committed adultery. Now to the average person, that is crushing. But to those who have been called and empowered by the Spirit of God to live as we've heard from Galatians chapter 5, to live by the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit, that's not crushing, brothers and sisters. That's empowering. And this, the, this sermon is not meant to weigh down the soul, but to encourage and raise the bar. To live not by the letter of the law, but by the spirit of the law. And so do not be confused. Do not misunderstand that Jesus is not teaching a works righteousness, but a righteousness that works. As we heard in Titus chapter 3, that we were saved not by works of righteousness, but by His grace. And so, have that in your mind when you hear Jesus say, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you ain't getting into heaven. And you walk out of here with your head hung low thinking, well, there's no way. I might as well give up this whole thing now because my righteousness will never exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Remember that Jesus here is, is preaching a sermon, quote unquote, sermon to a group of farmers, housewives and fishermen. This is not the theological elite of the day. These are, these are not the, the folks that were filling the seminaries. These are ordinary, everyday people that Jesus is calling to live an extraordinary life by what he accomplishes on the cross. And so Jesus here in this passage that I'm about to read transitions from those Beatitudes where he described the distinctives of God's kingdom people. We looked at those last week, eight distinctives. And we saw those two illustrations that we are to be salt and light. We are to be the preserving agents in this world and we are to be the light illuminating folks to Jesus. We are to be a light shining and Jesus transitions here. Beginning in verse 17, and this section really ends, if you have your Bible open, ends all the way um, at the end of chapter 5. What Jesus was going to do here today, and what we're going to think about, um, are his four views of the Old Testament. And then over the next couple of weeks, Jesus is going to deal with misconceptions concerning the law. And each one will, will begin with, you've heard it said, don't do this. But I say unto you, 
do this. In other words, Jesus isn't going to be casting the law aside. He is going to be giving divine interpretation of the law. He is going to help you and I understand how he intended the law to be interpreted from the beginning. And help push aside the misinterpretation that the religious leaders were imposing upon God's people. So I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5, if you've not done already. And uh, I'm going to just begin reading in verse 17. This is Jesus speaking. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus here in these short verses proclaims that he is the fulfillment of all to which the Old Testament, both law and prophets, pointed. But he does not set aside these moral principles as he ushers in a new era of redemptive history. We need to understand that, that Jesus' coming did not mean an end to what God had revealed in the Old Testament, but a ushering in of a new era of God's redemptive history. And so for you and I, we need to understand understand the Old Testament. We need to understand how did Jesus view the Old Testament and how are we to obey the Old Testament. How are we to obey the law? And so this is, to summarize, this is Jesus' teaching on the law. And he outlines for us this morning four views of the Old Testament as it applies to God's new era of redemptive history. Brothers and sisters, we must recognize that we cannot interpret the law the way Jews interpret the law when it was first received. Jesus' coming has ushered in a new era of redemptive history. I just want to keep re-emphasizing. It is new. That's why we call it old and new. It is a new era in history. And Jesus is helping his disciples, helping you and I, understand how we are to read in light of the Messiah's coming. How, how did things change? How did things begin to transform? And does that mean that we are to just throw it away. Jesus begins here in verse 17 by denying that he came to abolish the Old Testament. Jesus makes clear, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. The phrase there, do not think, means do not entertain the thought. Do, don't, don't even let that thought come into your mind that I have somehow come to do away with God's word revealed through Moses and the prophets. Now, this phrase that he says, uh, the law and the prophets, is, is really just, just another way of saying the Old Testament. Uh, the law or the Old Testament is often summarized 
in three parts, the, the law, the writings, and the prophets. Now, Jesus here isn't throwing the writings out. Um, you know, books like First and Second Samuel, First and 2 Kings, First and Second Chronicles, those would have been the writings. Uh, but rather, he, he's using it like a bookend might use, from beginning to end, like we, we do, we'll say, from Genesis to Revelation, right? The law and the prophets. Uh, from beginning to end, from, from the revelation given to Moses through the revelation given through Isaiah and the prophets. Jesus here is concerned with all of the Old Testament and he denies that he came to abolish it. Uh, the word there, abolish, means to annul, to do away with. Jesus here is teaching his disciples a continuation idea that the Old Testament law continues into this new era in so much that Jesus is the fulfillment of it. So why does Jesus make this statement? Well, apparently there were some who were accusing Jesus of throwing the law away. On several occasions in his ministry, Jesus was accused by the scribes and Pharisees and the other religious leaders as being a lawbreaker. Matthew himself, Jesus would go to Matthew's house after calling him to follow him. And, and Matthew threw him a big party. And, uh, and the Pharisees came and, he's, and confronted Jesus' disciples and say, Why does your master eat with sinners and tax collectors? Why does he break the law? Others would throw accusations that he was a drunkard. That he was a swindler. You see, Jesus was regularly ridiculed and accused of breaking the law. And Jesus makes clear through this sermon that he is no lawbreaker, but rather the one upholder of the law. Where everyone failed to uphold the law, Jesus perfectly obeyed God's law. There's a sense in which there is a logic to what Jesus is arguing in this passage. If... Jesus is to throw away the law, then there is no point of Jesus coming to obey the law. Jesus is making clear that in order for him to do what he has been sent to do, he must uphold and obey the law. And for his disciples, the temptation may be, oh, that, that if Jesus obeys the law, if Jesus fulfills the law, if Jesus is my righteousness, then I don't need to concern myself with the law. But it is in the law that we come to know and understand not rules and regulations. You know, because we're sinners... Because of our fallen nature, we see rules as bad, as negative, as restrictive. We see rules as something that's keeping us from what we want. But anyone who's ever taught a child a rule knows that rules aren't meant to be restrictive, but protective. We tell a young child, do not touch the hot stove. Not because we don't want them to have fun, but because we don't want them to get burned. We tell children, don't run. Why? Because we know that their giant heads are disproportional to their bodies and they somehow always land on the ground. 
Not because we don't want them to have fun. And you and I are that way with God. Your rules are keeping us from having fun. Our rules are restrictive and and they're taking away our autonomous freedom. But as Christians, we can't read the law or the Old Testament or any rule as a mere restrictive command, but rather as a means to know the one who gives the rule. Let me say that again. The rule is the means to know the character of the one who gives the rule. Let's say it this way. A parent who has no rules for their children is a parent who does not love their child. It's a means to know that that parent is a passive fool in the name of the prophets and the prophets. But the one who loves their child, the one who cares for their child, right? You see, the rule, the command reflects the character of the one giving it. And so the Old Testament is a reflection of who God is. The law is a a revelation of God's holy character, not merely a list of do's and don'ts. The Ten Commandments, what is probably the most well-known part of the law, though we know the law is greater than that, bigger than that, much more extensive and comprehensive. But those ten words received by Moses, those, those ten words that he wrote down in the Decalogue, those were a revelation of the character of the one true and living God that Moses beheld in the burning bush. And that Israel was to know the one true and living God and make him known by obeying the law. And it was their very disobedience and why God judged them in their disobedience. Because instead of attracting people to God, they were repelling people through their disobedience. And Jesus wants his disciples to make clear the purpose of the Old Testament was to reveal God's character and his plan of redemption. All the way back, Genesis chapter 3, the beginning of the law. You know, the Genesis is a part of the law. We, we often think it's just historical narrative, but, but the, the law began with Genesis. And in Genesis th- chapter 3... Moses, through the Spirit, reveals that God had a plan of redemption from the very beginning. Through the shedding of the blood of another, God would would free his people from their sins. And through the seed of the woman, through, through a descendant of Eve, would come the one who would finally and fully rescue God's people. And the rest of the Old Testament is a story about how God was unfolding that plan. And in Matthew chapter 1, we see that plan comes to fruition in the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus' words here in Matthew chapter 5 would make no sense whatsoever. The The whole gospel of Matthew would make utterly no sense apart from what God was doing 
for thousands of years, patiently drawing a people unto himself. Jesus says here that I've not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. Jesus makes a frank, radical statement. Notice with me there. For truly, I, or rather, ended verse 17, I have not come to abolish them, that is the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus makes clear that he has come to bring the law to its designed end, and that is himself. He is the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament laws. I mean, you think about that as you read that Old Testament. Everything is, has a trajectory to Jesus. He uses this phrase, until heaven and earth pass away. It's similar to our phrase, when hell freezes over. In other words, what Jesus means, never. Never. So truly I say, never will the law pass away. Never. Not an iota, not a dot. These are the, the smallest parts of the, of the Hebrew uh, script. Like a period or, or a little dot above an eye. He says none of that will be passed away. There's none of it being removed. Jesus here clearly defends the sufficiency and authority of God's word, as we'll see here in a moment. Jesus makes emphatically clear later in Matthew 24 that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. See, God's word is an abiding word. It's a never-ending word. Jesus makes clear of this abiding nature of his word that Jesus perfectly obeys and thereby fulfills all that the law pointed all that the law was meant to point toward, Jesus says, was really about me. Take the Passover lamb for a moment. One of the pinnacle climax in Exodus. You see the Passover, all the rest of the law sort of pointing back to that one event where God rescued his people through the, through the Passover lamb, the sacrifice. And what is John the God, John the Baptist say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you have no context for that phrase, if you just kind of cut your Old Testament and throw it in the trash, you would have no idea what John is talking about. Oh, he's just a cute little lamb frolicking through the field. Not at all. He's a lamb being led to the slaughter. A lamb who is being sacrificed as a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice, a substituting sacrifice, just as that, as that lamb sins were imparted upon it through prayer. So Jesus bore the wrath that our sins as a propitiation for our sins. See, the Old Testament gives us an understanding. We, we see the trajectory from the Passover lamb to the lamb of God who came. As Spurgeon would often quip when describing his style of preaching, he would say this, I take my text and I make a beeline to the cross. You see, 
Spurgeon saw every passage, old or new, pointing its way to Jesus. Now, brothers and sisters, if you've, if you've grown up in evangelical Christian circles, you know you've seen this abused, all right? Like the little tent pegs down at the temple, right? Pointed to the, the nails in Jesus. No, not so much. Or the little red scarf that, that was hung out the, the window there, pointed to the scarlet blood of Jesus. We, we could go on. This is not what we mean. Jesus does not mean that every single thing that happened in the Old Testament finds its way to him, but rather the overall trajectory from Genesis to his coming, every single story was an unfolding story of God's redemptive purposes that would be fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. What's the point? Well, as I said earlier, if we take the Old Testament and simply brush it away, then there is no promise fulfillment. One has summarized the Bible in, in really these two ways. Promises made and promises kept. In the Old Testament, God made promise after promise after promise. I bet you today, if you sat this afternoon and just flipped open to random Old Testament pages, you would find a promise on one of those pages. Whether it be a promise of deliverance, a promise of judgment, a promise of life, a promise of a Messiah, a promise. God made promises. And the New Testament is a revelation that God is a promise-keeping God. The, under, the Old Testament gives us the understanding of who Jesus is and why he came. As we see the failings of the nation of Israel and their continual disobedience of God, it teaches us that we cannot go to God on our own, that we cannot follow God apart from some miraculous work of God. It teaches us that we need a new and better way. And this is what God promised through the prophet Ezekiel. Through the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 36, God promises, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Friends, just read a little bit of the Old Testament and they had idols everywhere. It's like we have idols everywhere. So did they. And he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will, listen, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my law. In the giving of the new covenant, it doesn't say, and you'll get a new law. You'll get a new moral standard. Now, you, you have to understand that the Old Testament law is based upon the moral character of who God is. And Christians historically for 2,000 years have taught that the law is, a, is an important piece of the life of the Christian believer. That we are to know the law, not in the sense that we are obeying the, the, the rituals of the law, but the spirit of the law. And so these New Testament authors, like Matthew and others, give us an understanding and insight into how we are to read and understand our whole Bible. 
As Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. If you were just to parse the phrase that Paul has there, he doesn't say that it's the total end of the law. He says it's the end of the law for the purpose of righteousness. That the law is not the means of salvation, but he doesn't just throw it away. Brothers and sisters, we want to come away and understand Jesus' words here as reminding us that God is a promise-keeping God. This is why Paul would teach the church in Corinth, for all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. This is what Jesus is saying. And Paul is just affirming Jesus' teaching here in Matthew chapter 5. All of the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus is Israel. All the promises pointing to Israel is fulfilled in Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying. Well, you can work out your view of eschatology based on that statement, but, but nonetheless, we understand that Jesus is to which all it pointed. And we can trust that, that the one who promised to come and promises to come again will return and usher in his new kingdom. Brothers, as we consider this passage and understand what Jesus his view of it, I think it helps us understand and uphold God's word. We see in verses 19 through 20 that Jesus upheld the authority of the Old Testament. And let me say that this truth is probably one truth that you're going to want to come to know a little bit more in our day, in our culture, than any other. Notice what Jesus says here in chapter 5 and verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus compares here. He, he does a play on words. He says, the one who relaxes one of the least will be called least. Jesus is like, you know, everybody knows thou shalt not murder. Right? Everyone knows the Ten Commandments. Jesus says, whoever relaxes one of the least of the commandments and teaches others to do likewise will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. What does Jesus mean by relax? Well, Jesus here is putting forward the idea as, as one who obeys the letter of the law, yet disobeys the spirit of the law. This is what he does. It, it, look here with me in a number of examples. Jesus wants to make sure you don't walk away confused this morning. And so he goes on in verse 21 and he says this, You have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Or, or consider verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Well, where was that said? That was said in the Old Testament. That's in the law. 
We could find several Old Testament Levitical passages or passages from Ec. Uh, from Exodus or other, uh, uh, other Old Testament that says you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. Or look at verse 38. You've heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to the other also. You've heard it said, verse 42, you shall love your neighbor as your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is exposing fraudulent obedience. Jesus is exposing those who follow the letter of the law, yet are disobeying the spirit of the law. You shall not commit adultery. Okay. I've never committed adultery. Let me give you an illustration of this that might resonate for some of y'all in here. If y'all grew up Southern Baptist, be careful here. Uh, <laughs> like me, I remember there used to be little discussions about, boy, them deacons. Yep, we can't have any divorced deacons. Not one divorced deacon. The Bible says he's got to be a one-woman man. And I remember a lot of that. And some of you are like, oh, yeah, I remember that. Yep, can't be divorced. If you're divorced, you can't be a deacon. And you know what's interesting? I, I remember as a young pastor I, 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 in a deacon's meeting. And everyone in the room was like three times older than me. I say, y'all, here's the deal. You're obeying the letter of the law and not the spirit of the law. So what he's not committed adultery? So what he's not divorced? Let's say he's been married to the same woman for 50 years, but he's been unfaithful to her for 50 years. Are you saying he's qualified? He's not been divorced. He's not committed adultery. You see, that's what happens when we become legalists. We become experts on the law, but we miss the God of the law. We miss the point. The point isn't that we haven't done something to break the law. The point is, is what spirit have we approached the law? Paul writes the church in Rome in this way. He says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. You see, the Old Testament is not pitted against the new. It's not old versus new. It's not law versus grace. All right? We ain't Presbyterian. All right? That's not what it is. It's that God is revealing himself and it is the authoritative word of God. It is telling us who God is. And as I pointed out earlier, you cannot have a trajectory to Jesus apart from the law. We need to understand our need for a Savior. We need to understand the depth of our own depravity and our inability and the need for the empowering work of the Holy Spirit that we might know God and obey His Word. For it is through the law that we understand our need of a Savior. Through the weight that we cannot obey. And Jesus teaches here in this passage that the Old Testament is the infallible and authoritative word of God. Is that how you understand the Old Testament? Or is it just outdated? Is it just moot? Does it doesn't matter? 
God's a God of love, and He forgives us, and He loves us in Jesus. It doesn't matter how we live. You know, there's some in our culture that would even say that some of these laws are just really out of step with the modern man. Really? Friend, you just have to watch the news tonight. Scroll through your Facebook feed, wherever you get your news from, and you'll find a culture completely hell-bent on disobeying all of God's Word. Okay. And as Christians, the last thing we want to do is fall in line and misunderstand how God has, has revealed Himself in His Word. And know that things haven't changed. God, God's not a different God in the New Testament. It's the same God. And we are to come and understand that, that we are to not only know the law, but obey the law. Now, does this mean that we are to obey the rituals of the law? No, clearly Paul in the New Testament teaches there is a distinguishing between some of the rituals within the, the theocracy of Israel and this new community called the church. Clearly there's not a complete continuity between circumcision and the New Testament church. All right? So we, we don't obey, the, right? But we understand that there is a trajectory where those Old Testament commands find their fulfillment, their completion in the person and work of Jesus. We understand the point that God is made, making through circumcision that God's people were to be people set apart, distinct, otherly from the world. Well, doesn't the New Testament describe us to be exactly the same? We're to be salt and light. Separate and distinct. How? By being people who are holy. Jesus go on, goes on and fourthly we hear, see here. And commands his disciples to obey and teach the Old Testament. There is perhaps no other clear statement that Jesus makes about the Old Testament than here. He says that whoever teaches, whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, Jesus here is describing an exceeding righteousness, a righteousness that goes beyond the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. What does he mean? That is, we are people of the spirit who obey the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. In other words, we go beyond that what Jesus is going to teach in the subsequent verses here about anger, about lust, about retaliation, about divorce and remarriage. We talk about an exciting verse to preach on. What Jesus talks about what it really means to love others, love the people who hate you. Jesus doesn't lower the bar to help his disciples get over it. He raises the bar. Says it similarly, those who want to go to the kingdom of heaven have to enter the narrow gate. For wide is the gate that enters into destruction. Jesus never, when the crowds were the biggest, he doesn't say the sweet stuff like we want, we'd expect you. Jesus says some of the hardest, most restrictive things about the kingdom of God, lest we become confused about God's holiness and our sinfulness. 
God has given us a new heart. We have been regenerated. We have the Spirit of God living within us that as we heard from the prophet Ezekiel, we might obey and follow God's law. Friend, do you uphold the authority of God's Word? I mean all of God's Word. We began by looking at how often as Christians we, we are so hanging out in the New Testament we neglect the Old Testament. But some of the richest passages about what it means to follow God in a fallen world is found in the pages of the Old Testament. To see the trials of, of men and women like David and Elijah and Ezekiel. To see the struggles that God's people faced, the injustice that they faced. It gives us language, it gives us understanding, it gives us the ability to worship God even when we suffer. I mean, if we didn't have Job, we wouldn't, we wouldn't know that God sometimes calls His people to have a life that is awful and terrible and not the best one now. That God hasn't called you to be rich and fat in this world, but rich in the kingdom of heaven. You see, we need to be Christians who uphold all of Scripture. To believe the Bible. To live like we believe the Bible. Friend, it is so easy to obey the letter of the law and not the spirit of the law. We do it at work. We check in. We clock in. And then we scroll through Facebook. We clock in. We're there. We're present. We're not late. We're on time every day. We're, we're never late to work. And we always get there. But then we, we do our least. We don't work hard. We appear to be working. We appear to be doing it. But we're lazily going about the day. We have filled the, we filled the law. We checked in and checked out on time. But we didn't obey the spirit of the law. Brothers and sisters, we, we need to be people who uphold all of God's word. To seek to understand how these laws apply to our life in this new era of God's redemptive history. Does it mean that we run around obeying uh, Old, Old Testament Sabbath laws? But understand how those are fulfilled in Christ. To understand what they pointed to, how they revealed God's character, and how they reveal our need for Him. We need to trust that as Christians we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, the power to obey His Word. We, we need not lower the bar as God's people, but raise the bar. Set it high. Call one another to these high moral standards and moral principles that Jesus has allowed us to do. We need to understand that we have the power of God in us to obey. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask. Do we believe that? Do you believe that when you're com confronting the temptation that besets you? The struggles that are before you? When you understand that you keep falling flat on your face. You see, you know what the difference is between a non-Christian and a Christian? When we fail morally, we get back up. That's the difference. We get back up. We keep moving forward. And progressively, over a long period of time, we look more and more like Jesus. 
Brothers and sisters, let us uphold God's word from Genesis to Revelation as the inspired, infallible, authoritative word of God. That we might come to know God ourselves and his saving purposes through Jesus Christ in his word. Let's pray. Father, we do pray this morning that we might know you better through your word. That we might know ourselves and our need for a savior. Father, I pray this week we might come to love the law, to love the one who fulfilled the law for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. We pray this for your glory and our good in Christ. Amen.